Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Gaslit. I'm Shay, and I'm joined by my co-host, Erica. Hi, Erica. Hey, Shay. I'm so excited. (laughs) Yeah, today we have a fantastic episode that I am just so excited about because I am a church girly. So today's episode is about Faith and RJ. I know I'm playing the Beyonce song in my head right now as I say that, but... (laughs) We are joined by two fantastic guests that I'm so excited to introduce, so we're just going to hop right into it. Today, we are joined by Reverend Angela Tyler Williams, who uses, whose pronouns are she, her, and she is the co-director for Movement Building at Sacred, which is the spiritual alliance of communities for reproductive dignity. Sacred is an alliance of religious leaders, congregation, movement organizations, activists, and academics collaborating to advance reproductive justice through congregational designation, culture change, community building, and direct service. Angela is a queer pastor ordained by the Presbyterian Church into her call to engage people of faith to speak publicly and politically in support of reproductive health, rights, and justice in LGBTQI plus equality. She holds a Master's of Divinity from Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The Center for American Progress named Angela as one of the 22 faith leaders to watch in 2022. And she learned about faith-based community organizing and building people power to create positive social change from the Industrial Areas Foundation. Angela's roots are in the South, particularly in the resistance of movements in red states, and she carries those struggles into her life now, based in Washington, D.C. She finds life in experiencing music, listening to podcasts, exploring creation, engaging in theological discussions that go off the beaten path. Hello, Reverend Angela. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. It is so good to be with y'all. We're also joined today um, by the amazing Reverend Letitia James. Um who goes by, uses she and they pronouns, and is affectionately known as Reverend Pleasure, uh, which is amazing. And it's a Black queer femme womanist writer, facilitator of healing spaces for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, women, femmes, and LGBTQIA folks, um, and sacral spirit, uh, is a sacral spirituality coach. Um, Reverend Letitia is a Master of Divinity and has a Certificate of Sexuality Religion and is a graduate from the Pacific School of Religion, where she lives and works at the intersection of pleasure activism, sacral sanctity, spirituality, reproductive, and healing justice. Letitia is organized, is ordained, I'm sorry, hello, my organizer brain came out. Letitia is ordained at the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries and the co-director for organizational development at Sacred. So welcome, Reverend Letitia. Welcome. (laughs) Thanks, y'all. Really happy to be here. Nice. Amazing. So we just want to jump right in and we're hoping that you can talk to us a little bit about what is sacred and um, more about the work that you all do. Yeah. So sacred is an alliance of religious leaders, congregations, movement organizations, activists, and academics collaborating to advance reproductive justice through congregational education, culture change, community building, and direct service. And so we get to work with lots of folks across the movement, both in faith-based spaces, and we connect to some of our sec- with our secular partners in the reproductive health rights and justice space to figure out ways that we can shift the culture, because that's really what we know we need in this moment. Um, th- there's a lot going on. The world is on fire. And to meet this moment and win 
we have got to invest in culture change. And we've got to do that in communities of faith and change the dominant narrative that says that people of faith are anti-abortion, which is simply not true and has never been true. And so that is our lane in this big, broad movement. Amazing. So important. Uh, yes. Um, can you tell us what it means to be a designated sacred congregation? Like, what is what is that? Yeah, so all sacred congregations vote to affirm our guiding principles and our commitments. Um, so they believe that all creation is good and includes a beautiful diversity of sacred bodies, sexualities, and reproductive journeys. They believe that the dignity of sacred bodies and the moral agency of all people deserve respect, including the bodily autonomy and agency of women, queer people, gender diverse people, people with disabilities, immigrants, indigenous populations, and people of color who have often been denied this respect. They believe that reproduction is a sacred responsibility and that prayerful decisions to have children, to not have children, or to end a pregnancy can be equally moral. And therefore, they commit to living this out in the world by creating loving, justice-seeking faith communities where shame, judgment, or stigma for diverse reproductive decisions and journeys have no place. They commit to supporting the work of parenting and the healthy growth of children in safe, sustainable, and nurturing communities. And they commit to advocating for equitable access to the full spectrum of comprehensive reproductive health care as a moral and social good and supporting fulfillment of reproductive moral agency and flourishing for all. Wow. <laughs> I, just hearing you like say that um, just healed the little kid in me that was raised in a Catholic church. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's really beautiful, the work that y'all are doing, and I know how important it is because faith is such an important aspect, and I know in my life and so many of our clients' lives, so to have folks who are doing the work to create that culture shift is really important because faith matters, and we know RJ matters, and they are there's so many ways where it makes sense that they go together, and so to have y'all leading this work and highlighting that and making it accessible to folks, and I really love what you said about living this out in the world. That part feels really important to me because it's not just the talking, it's the action behind it so that people feel supported and cared for, seen, and loved, and like gives me chills. I'm just in, have so much gratitude for the work that you do because it changes people's lives in a really, really important way. Um, can you share, I know we, I just blabbered about it for a little bit, but can you share more about the intersection of faith and RJ and what that means to you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Oh gosh, it's a, it's such a huge topic, right? And it's been going on for so long. And I think that's where I want to start is that most people think that um, when they think about faith and reproductive issues, they immediately go to anti-abortion, right? They immediately go to right-wing evangelical policies that have now been uh, codified into a law, unfortunately. Um, and the idea that um, people of faith and religious people are automatically against anything to do with reproductive justice values. And that's actually inherently untrue. Um, and so 
part of why um, Sacred does the work that we do and why we are a coalition is because we wanted to help people to see that actually people of faith have been in support of reproductive justice and reproductive rights um, for years, even before we had Roe v. Wade, even before Roe was in effect. Um, So this campaign, this anti-abortion campaign rooted in like evangelical religious values is only about 40 years old. Um, Originally, we had um, a history of um, supporters of access to abortion, um, starting what we know as as early in this country, as early as 1967, um, with the clergy consultation service. So the Clergy Consultation Service um, was literally a group of clergy, um, Christian and also Jewish clergy um, that we know of who would support at the time um, cisgender women's ability to access safe abortion right before there was legal access and so they would do things like go undercover to clinics right um, or so-called clinics to make sure that it was a safe environment to make sure that it wasn't going to be something where they could be harmed and to like scope it out first before they actually took somebody who needed an abortion um, they would provide safe haven within sanctuaries provide meals counseling, they would drive them. So all the things we think about these days, right, that happen, that clinics do and escorts do, like these clergy were doing it even before Roe was law. Um, And so this went on for quite some time. Um, And then, of course, Roe, you know, came into effect and they still continued. And the clergy consultation service was a precursor to um, the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, um, which when it was first founded um, was the Religious Coalition for um, abortion abortion care or abortion abortion rights abortion rights yes our car yes the religious coalition for abortion rights um and then they changed their name later um i personally think they should have kept the first name but (laughs) that's just me um so I think, you know, we have that precursor, we have that history of work that has continued. And then from there, we have other organizations, faith-based organizations, right? Like Catholics for Choice, like um, National Council of Jewish Women, like Faith Choice Ohio. Um, We have organizations now like Heart, Women and Girls, a um, Muslim-based organization doing incredible, incredible work. Um, And... I want to be really clear, right, because we're talking about RJ, because we're talking about reproductive justice, that when reproductive justice, the framework was created in 1994 in Chicago by those 12 Black women, it was inherently spiritual. It was inherently faith-based. The majority of those women in the room were participated in some type of faith practice. And it wasn't just Christianity. You had people who were Buddhist in the room. You had people who had been raised Islam in, in, in who had been raised Muslim in the room. Um, and practicing the Islamic faith. And so, and then of course you had women who were Christians who had been raised in the Christian faith um, in the black church, in the room. And the reproductive justice values were deeply informed by their faith background, right? And their faith values. And so unfortunately what has happened is that over the years, because the, um, because anti-abortionists are so, 
provocative and so loud. And because what they do have on their side is the ability to galvanize around one particular values framework, right? They're so good at pushing that narrative of like this set values framework and this being the only values framework. And people can buy into that very easily. They didn't even care about abortion until they lost um, the the fight for desegregation, right? That was their whole thing. They didn't want to integrate the schools, right? And so when they lost, they were like, okay, well, we need a new thing. And they were literally like picking and choosing issues. They were like, well, let's try pornography. Let's try this. Let's try that. And the pe- their people weren't getting excited about any of the issues that they were putting forth until abortion, Right. And I think part of why abortion became their issue is because they were able to tap into this very narrow values framework. Right. And this idea of like, oh, life. Okay. Yeah. That's like so simple. It's very like kitschy and catchy. But when you push them on anything, when you try to drive them further, it, it loses the plot. Um, And so one of the things I think around, you know, progressive faith and RJ values for us that we are really trying to help our movements or ground in is that it's okay that we are, have a multiplicity of values that we uphold and that we believe in. Actually, that's part of our strength. And it's okay that there's a complexity of narratives when it comes to abortion, when it comes to reproductive justice, reproductive health, et cetera. Like that is a part of the experience of humans. It's the part of the experience also of divinity, right? Of the divine. Whenever people start talking about God and this idea that God has this one idea and this one belief and, you know, this one way of doing things, I'm like, that is truly contradictory to human creation and experience. Like, do we actually think that divine divinity, God, however you want to call it, would create this multiplicity of humans and not also create with it a multiplicity of beliefs and values for us to guide our lives, right? Like, literally makes no sense to me that people really want to push that narrative um, and so when I think about faith in RJ as somebody who was raised in the black church, I was raised evangelical, I was raised Pentecostal, um, you know, I was, I was raised to believe that abortion was wrong, um, and who is now an ordained minister, uh, and who also practices an African traditional religion, right, and is an initiate in that faith. I truly tell people all the time that it really is between someone's personal belief system that guides their life, right? So it's between them and their God, them and their values and how it is that they are moving in their being. Um, and everyone has that right. Everyone has a right to their own dignity, um, right? And to deciding for themselves, that's why it's in our name. Everyone has that right to really um, be their own moral authority when it comes to their personal choices, right? That's not to say that we don't have moral frameworks that guide our lives and principles as humanity and as society. Of course we do and we need them. But when it comes to like deeply personal decisions, um, that is where I think having a progressive faith uh, framework is extremely helpful for the reproductive justice movement um, and for all the work that we're doing. 
well same same <laughs> like I know I'm supposed to say something but I want to let it settle a little bit because I feel a little stirred up in a in a brilliant way I feel so good that was amazing thank you so so much like I knew about the piece of history of like evangelical society like pivoting away from segregation and being like okay abortion's gonna be the, the thing that moves people I knew about that but I had no clue that like some of the first practical support of abortion funds were like religious people and that's amazing and makes so much sense um you know and and so just like learning that is kind of amazing and also it's just kind of like oh also also you're pointing that like the abortion rights movement is only 40 years old or the anti-abortion movement is only 40 years old um it's kind of wild to think about that it's like less than it's, it's younger than my dad um <laughs> which is wild um so thank you so much for like breaking all that history down and i feel like i've just been, like we've all just been schooled in a beautiful way um like I guess just kind of going off of that, and I feel like you kind of alluded to that, um, would y'all say that, like, the anti-abortion movement currently has a monopoly on faith? No. Yeah. The short answer is (laughs) That's that's the short answer. Um, I would say if I were to give a little bit of a longer answer... Um, uh, just to reiterate something I said earlier, what they have a monopoly on is the simplicity of a value. Right? Um, and I want to say this in a way that is as grace-filled as possible. Um, they make it seem really simple. Um, and as human beings, our brains do very well with simple complex with simple concepts, right? Black and white, right and wrong, um, left or right. And the human experience is just not that way. Life is complicated. It's very complex. It's very complicated. We are complex human beings. Um, And so it is very easy to point to um, a commandment that says, thou shalt not murder, and then equate that to what is happening when one terminates a pregnancy, right? And very like simple, yes, just look, it, it makes sense. It's it's logical. Um, but we know that that's not what's happening, um, right? We know that terminating pregnancy is not murder. We know that decisions are much more complex than that. We also know from their own text, from the same text that I was raised with, there is actually no argument at all in the Bible, in the Christian Bible, against abortion. None whatsoever. Um, there is an actual story in the Bible that supports abortion. And it's actually an abortion that is performed by a priest. And God tells the priest how to do the abortion. So they never want to talk about that, right? Because then things get very complicated. (laughs) Things get very messy. Um, And the thing that I love about our movement, Reproductive Justice, is that we are okay being in the mess of things. We are okay being in the complexities of things. Um, If you ever ask a clinic protester, you know, one too many questions when they start saying, oh, 
God loves your baby and all these things. And then you ask them, okay, well, are you going to babysit for me when this baby comes? You know, are you going to help me sustain my income? They get very flustered, right? Because they don't know how to deal with the complexities um, of life and what's being put in front of them. And I'm sorry, but if your faith cannot hold the complexities of life, if your faith is not big enough, if your God is not big enough to hold the complexities of life, that you can you can only hold these very simplistic black and white terms that I don't want to be a part of that faith, then that is not a God that I can believe in. That is not a God that I serve. That's not a God that I that I follow. The God that I follow is a very big God who can hold the complexity of all of who I am and all of who their creation is. Um, and so, no, the short answer is no. They don't have a, mon- a monopoly on faith. They have a monopoly on a simplistic values framework. I want to jump in here and go farther back in the history of how we talk about faith and abortion and faith and reproductive justice and just honor and recognize that for time immemorial, women and birthing people have been in charge of their fertility and have managed that and have held the hands and have been in the birthing rooms and and have grieved over miscarriages and stillbirths and and maternal mortality. And, And it was women's work. It, it was women's authority. It was women's power for so much of human history. And one of the prevailing theological beliefs that, that is driving the white Christian nationalist agenda against abortion is the idea that life begins at conception. That is not a theologically originating idea that was developed by Dr. Horatio Storer in 1847, who was instrumental in developing the American Medical Association, which was professionalizing doctors and pushing the midwives and the women out of the birthing and the fertility spaces. And he needed some way. There's always been this this three-legged stool of clergy, lawyers, and doctors when it comes to reproduction and the story of rights and access um, to our reproductive lives and dignity in our decisions. And, And this argument actually came from the physician who said, I need to push out these women. How, what, what is the argument? What is the doctrine that I can come up with? And he's the one who came up with life begins at conception and then used that. And so then you've got this reverse engineering by theologians and by Christian men, especially at that time, Christian men, leaders to then say, well, if Dr. Horatio Storr gave us this, it's not divinely inspired by God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, like where is this coming from? And, and so that is sort of one of these undergirding beliefs that has gone through. But again, that's 1847. Um, following up on everything <laughs> Letitia named earlier in terms of the, the history. In 1973, I want to read you a quote from the pastor W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas in 1973. 
He said, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. So the Baptist pastor understands that, that, that life is beginning afterwards. And, and even then, we can do what's best for the pregnant person and what's best for the future. And the Southern Baptist Convention had a policy supporting abortion and supporting um, choices and decisions and honoring that as a a moral, uh, acknowledging the complexity in some cases, honored that until 1980. It's only in 1980 that someone was like, hey, I see we've got this policy. We might want to change that. But that's already when we're getting the rise of the the moral um, majority, the religious right. And, and that was a particular targeted political campaign using religion as a weapon. That is not divinely inspired. It is not in the good book. It is not of the people of God. It is of the political machine. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you said so much, and I feel like I, I'm loving all the history we're getting because it's explaining the context and things. I also grew up in a church. I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday for the majority of my life and went to a church that told me abortion was wrong. And so having to re getting to learn some of this for the very first time and understanding the context and things that just feel aligned and true that um, everything just feels so true and right. And um, I feel feel like one of the things that I'm recognizing is that um, they're changing history to match what they want us to think and know. And so it's just revisionist and the removal of the truth and replacing that truth of love and choice and acceptance and support at all times with hate and then capitalizing on what you mentioned of this simplistic values of like there's no nuance there's no complexity you have to follow this very strict rigid line to be loved and that's just like you said not a god that i serve because i serve a god of choice i serve a god of love and so i'm just really happy to hear all of the things that y'all are sharing it's so rich and meaningful I just keep saying true because that's what it feels like. It just feels like when you know, you know, and y'all know. So thank you for sharing. (laughs) I'm also just like a little bit like mind blown right now from, because like this context is things that like I've, I've known about like intellectually. And also like, I understand that like midwives used to run, birthing and everything else that came with it and i understood that like doctors professionally wanted them out Mm -hmm. but i did not think about the layer of like religion and spirituality that came to that i know that like people again and this just might be sorry to share too much of my trauma but like i've only known religion to be used as like almost like a weapon sometimes or or faith and so like i've i've I also fundamentally understand like how accusations in like 
witch trial burning times are like let's let's make people you know for into this concept of like this innate connection to life I don't know and so all of that is just to say that like again my mind is blown but also it makes complete sense that you know there's this vested interest in as you said Jay like rewriting history and so therefore like I don't know it's just a lot I my mind is being blown right now but essentially I just want to thank you for sharing that with us and also like pointing out that like you know complexity is good and complexity is actually where we live and and the times that we've been made to feel wrong is because we are like outside of that box just naturally and so yeah sorry I'm rambling now but thank you is what I'm trying to say it's our pleasure yeah it's all good I love all the aha moments because that's exactly what it is. And that's part of why sacred exists and why we do the work we do around the curriculum that we created, right, is to um, support and guide folks through these aha moments, right, to help them share their stories and to make connections for themselves um, with their faith stories and their reproductive stories and to see that, like, no, we are, no one is alone in this, right, that, like, these things have been imposed on us these very rigid and narrow boxes have been imposed on us um and that actually this is not at all (laughs) what creator intended um for any of us and um regardless of the faith that you follow if you look at any of the sacred texts um they're full and they're so diverse and they're so rich and they're full of all of these very complex stories where you're like, oh my gosh, what, (laughs) right? Like, what is the moral of this and how do we navigate this? Um, And that for me is part of this idea of the good news, right? When people talk about the good news within Christianity, within the gospel, um, is that you're able to look at something that happened so long ago, um, whether you believe it to be, you know, completely true or whether you believe it to be inspired, but look at something that was in a completely different time and context and find the meaning in, of, of, in it for your life today, um, right? That in and it of itself is a complex um, thing to do. It's a thing, and it's a very fragile thing to hold, um, and it needs to be held tenderly and with as much care as possible and not this, oh, well, this is the way that it's supposed to be. If there can be multiple interpretations then, how many more interpretations must there be now, um, given how we have advanced as a people um, in 2000 plus years? Um, so at Lilith Fund, a lot of our clients come from a religious background and some of it is just mentioned kind of like really briefly, like in a God bless you or something like that. And sometimes we'll have longer conversations with people where they feel shame or fear around um, their their faith and their decision to have an abortion. And so I was wondering if you can say more about the importance of having pro-abortion spiritual spaces and what that can mean to people. Yes, most definitely. Um, So I'll share a bit of a personal story. Um, So when I was in seminary, I went to seminary at Pacific School of Religion in in Berkeley, California. Um, One of your requirements of your MDiv is you have to do a field education placement. 
kind of similar to when you get your master's in social work, right? You have to do some type of um, some type of like hands-on experience. And a lot of times folks will do uh, church placements. They'll go into different um, congregations. But I was like, no, I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. I had gone to seminary with the intention of like, expanding my work as a reproductive justice activist and advocate from a faith-based perspective. And so I decided to do a chaplaincy internship at a local hospital. Um, And during that time, I worked in the abortion clinic in the hospital. And I was able to develop a relationship with the staff there. They were very weary of the chaplaincy staff, in part because um, before my supervisor took over the program, it was ran by a Catholic priest. um, And he had zero desire to (laughs) dispatch chaplains to the abortion clinic. Um, But I was all about it. And my supervisor was like, you know, if you want to try to build a relationship with them and see what happens. I was like, yes, please. Um, And so I did. It really helped that at the time I was on the board of all options um, and the uh, nurse supervisor for the abortion clinic um, was very familiar with all options and and the executive director. And so she was willing to have a conversation with me um, when, you know, I told her I was reproductive justice advocate and all the things. And she was like, okay, I'm open to this. (laughs) And so we started talking and talking about what it would look like to have chaplains in the space. And so met with the clinic workers, met with the nurses, met met with the aftercare staff, um, got to really learn about the process, the procedures, what they were doing. And so we, we taught, um, the chaplains, like we all learned about the procedures in depth, uh, what was happening. We learned about the demographics of the clients. So we learned about why they were coming, um, you know, the majority of the procedures that were taking place. And at that clinic, because of the hospital that they were in, the majority of the procedures that were taking place were fetal anomalies um, or were um, around, you know, later term abortions because of um, folks uh, coming to come from really, really rural areas where they didn't have medical care and where they didn't have a lot of support and they didn't have money. Um, and so you had people who were either like living in poverty finding out too late, or you had folks who had wanted pregnancies and then finding out that there were um, dangers um, either to um, the birthing person or to the fetus. And so um, it was one of those situations where I had to do a lot of my own moral wrestling um, because up until that point, I was, um, and I'm going to use this term uh, on purpose, even though I don't use it anymore, I was pro-choice in theory. Um, right. I was like, yeah, I'm pro-choice. I believe in person's right to choose. But because I was raised the way that I was raised, I was like, oh, no, but I could never. I could never. Right. I was one of those people. Um, And so when I learned that there were later term abortions happening at this clinic, I was like, oh, Okay, it it challenged even me, but here I am supposing to be the the chaplain that is supposed to like bring the other chaplains along, right? So I was like, all right, so I had to do my own wrestling. I'm like wrestling, and I'm still in seminary, so I'm having like theological conversations every day, all the things. Um, and I ended up having to perform my very first ritual 
for a family. Um, it was a wanted pregnancy. Um, the fetus was no longer viable. Um, and so they had a DNC and the parents wanted to do a naming ceremony. Um, and they wanted to commemorate, um, their, their child as, as they referred to them. And, um, my supervisor helped me to do a blessing to create a blessing to create a ritual for them and the clinic staff they already had their own practices and they had a practices particularly in those situations with a wanted pregnancy of they would bring out the remains um, they would do flowers and a candle um, and so we uh, kind of just added on to that and enhanced that with the parents' input, um, learned what their faith background was, what do they usually do, what kind of support they wanted. And so we went in and we did a blessing with them. We prayed for them. Um, they named um, their baby um, and we said their baby's name and we dedicated their baby to God and their creator. Um, and some of, some of the clinic staff came in um, and we just sat with them for a while and talked through it. And in that situation, um, for me, what it solidified and affirmed was that people who are already spiritual people, they don't leave their spirituality at the door when they make these decisions. These decisions are inherently informed by them being spiritual people. And so when you tell them that they are no longer spiritual, that they are any less religious, any less godly, any less faith-filled, when they are met with having to make choices like that, you are completely stripping them of their God-given agency, right? And their own moral autonomy. And that they need to know that there are spiritually rooted staff around them so that they can feel comfortable enough to bring their whole selves into that room, right? And that's part of the messiness. I've heard so many times, I, I have counseled, spiritually counseled, I don't even know how many people at this point, um, either in person or over the phone as a uh, counsel clergy counselor with Faith Aloud, um, which Angela is also a clergy counselor with, who have talked about how they felt like they just had to go in and like separate themselves, cut this part of themselves off, do the procedure, right? And like keep it together all by themselves. And there, nobody should have to do that. So that is part of like the mess that I say we are willing to be in with people is that complexity because sometimes there is a crisis of faith. Sometimes there is that, that wrestling that people are having with because of all of the things that we've been indoctrinated with. And so it's so, so important. One, that Clinics are open to spirituality and faith being brought in, right? Because the people that are being served are bringing it with them anyway, right? And then it's so important that religious spaces have that pro-abortion, pro-reproductive justice stance, and that they talk about things like this from the pulpit, that they talk about things like this in Bible study, because they're happening anyway, right? Your congregants are going through it anyway. Your flock is going through it anyway. And so how much more supported would they feel? How much less alone would they feel if you actually talked about it? If you actually shared, told your own story? Um, because as Angela says, 
everyone has a reproductive story, whether you decide to parent or not. And everyone has a faith story, whether you are a part of a religion or not, right? Even if you are atheist, you have a faith story. Your your formation, your path to becoming an atheist is your faith story. And so how much more rich would our movement be? Perhaps even more... Um, further along in some ways, right? Could we be if we held all of these things together rather than these environments that we have created in secular, you know, by separating secular and spiritual so that people feel like they cannot be all of themselves all of the time when they are grappling with some of the most important decisions um, that they're ever going to make in their lives. And sometimes some of the most painful decisions. I think that's the last thing I'll say about it is that, unfortunately, I feel like over time, we've created this narrative that um, there's only one way to have an abortion, right? That it's either that you're like all for it and no regrets and no shame and no nothing, um, right? And that that's the way that we have to be in our movement. And that's simply not true, um, right? And a lot of times, some of the reasons that folks coming into clinics will hold off that part of themselves um, and will sit in a place of isolation is because they are having some shame, is because they are, you know, having some regret or sadness. And that's part of the messiness, too, of holding the complexity of all of those emotions that... Yes, there are some people who are really, really happy. There are some people who are clear about their decision and who know that they want this abortion. They need this abortion. This abortion is going to save their lives. And they're sad. And we need to hold the both end of that for folks. Um, And that's part of the work that Sacred does. It's part of why spiritual counseling, I feel like, in abortion settings is so important. Because when you have a non-judgmental ministry of presence and people who are trained in that ability to hold that complexity with folks, the both end of things, right? It's so vital. Um, One of the clients I will never forget to this day who I pray for often was a woman who had four children. She was raised Catholic. She knew she needed to have this abortion. She was in an abusive situation. She could not care for this fifth child, even even though she wanted to, but she couldn't. And she knew she couldn't. And to save her life, the life of her four children, she was like, I have to terminate this pregnancy. And she was clear. She was grounded and clear. And then afterwards, she asked to see a chaplain because she couldn't get her grandmother's voice out of her head. And she wanted to know she was going to hell and if God hated her now. And we sat in that room for an hour while she grappled with all of those feelings, right? The both and of being clear and grounded in the decision she made and also feeling turbulence because this is how her grandmother raised her. And that was what she had. And that's the voice she had in her head. And what she needed was somebody to hold that complexity with her, right? While she figured out a way forward. So what you're saying is a pro-abortion faith-based space is beautiful and vital to like everybody. Um, That's amazing. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Wow.
Yeah, I I love this pause, and I want to just invite us to sit in it. That was beautiful. There, you said something about being comfortable bringing their whole selves in, and I feel like that is so important to having the pro-abortion spaces, uh, spiritual spaces, so people feel like they can show up as themselves authentically and get messages that see them and support them wherever they are. And I really love the both. And we always talk about nuance on this show, and I think it's because we talk about RJ so much, and they're just so intertwined. And you just highlighted so well that everybody, quoting Reverend Angela, everybody has their own faith story. Everybody has their own reproductive story and just being able to be supported and loved and cared for and knowing that like, it's okay to have a wide array of feelings about whatever you just experienced. And those are both seen and acknowledged and like understood, like not feeling to be made, like not being made to feel like what you're experiencing is unheard of or you're the only one who's ever felt that way Uh, encouraging people to show up as themselves and recognizing that that within itself is worth all the value and love and like everything that you need you already have and so having those spaces where people can go and leaders like you who can help teach others and make sure that these spaces are safe are is just really essential work so again so much gratitude for the work um, that you all do. And I'm wondering if you can say more about what led you to do this type of work. Do you feel that you were called spiritually to it? Like what is your faith RJ story? If you don't mind sharing that with us, cause I know it's going to be so good. <laughs> do you want to start? Yeah, that's a perfect segue. Um, so I, am a mainline Protestant. I am Presbyterian to the bone. My dad is a Presbyterian minister. I was born in this beautiful frozen chosen world. Um, and I, I feel like there are just breadcrumbs. Like I, I, I come into reproductive justice work because of the church and because of the Christians who have formed me and because of the interfaith relationships I have with people from other faiths who have taught me what justice um, looks like in this world. And so my parents met when they were both living in intentional Christian community and running uh, what was a battered women's shelter in the 80s. We now probably call it a domestic violence shelter. Um, And then my older sister was born uh, with cerebral palsy. And so learning what it meant to be a disability justice advocate, literally from birth, um, and needing to advocate for spaces um, for her to be fully welcomed and to be her full self, um, access to those spaces, and being a part of, you know, crop walks and walking for hunger and collecting money because there are poor people in the world was always a part of that. And in my sort of mainline Christian tradition, um, we knew we weren't like those fundamentalist evangelicals. So we took the Bible seriously, but not literally. Um, I have always loved 
the LGBTQ community, even before I realized I was one of us. Um, and, and that was never an issue. Like it was not something I needed to consternate over or fully reconcile. It was just a part of where I was. Um, and I got into uh, community organizing. And so Letitia says she went to seminary to do reproductive justice and seminary things. And I went to, reprodu- I went to seminary um, wanting to both be a pastor and a community organizer. And so through community organizing, I learned about homelessness and affordable housing. And I listened to women experiencing homelessness tell me about um, how they struggled to find safe places to go to the bathroom while they were on their periods and what was access to period products like um, and what were the assaults that they experienced living on the streets and how unsafe the shelters felt to them. Um, I went to seminary and the 2016 election was my very first semester. So I was in Texas uh, during that administration and it was a wild time, as a lot of us know. Um, so immigration became really important, and we we knew that it was not uh, folks were not being treated with dignity as children were separated from their parents and put into cages. And I also did some work around climate justice and the climate crisis, and recognizing that the the impacts of the climate crisis was going to get to the frontline communities who are the most poor in this world first. And I learned. About, uh, I also came out in the middle of seminary, and one of the sort of rites of passage is you come out and then you immediately go into LGBTQ and faith organizing or some sort of work. <laughs> and so I started doing that at the Texas legislature, um, organizing people of faith to speak out. We were preparing for another um, bathroom bill in 2019 that didn't come to pass. And it was while I was doing that work that I then got introduced to the reproductive justice framework. And I was coming out of seminary and I was really discerning a call of what, where, where did I want to be? And I wanted to live out my call in a way that did not require me to segment off parts of myself. That did not say, well, you can come in, but you need to leave your queerness behind. You can come in, but we're not going to talk about anti-racism here. You can come in, but we're not actually talking about abortion or sex or bodies and any of that. And so I was really struggling with where could I be, where, what, what was a community, what was a home that could hold the fullness of this. Um, and it was actually in seminary, a classmate of mine I was sitting next to, I don't even remember how this came up, but she said a comment. She's like, I mean, I, I'm pro-choice, but I think I would say beyond that, I'm pro-abortion. And it, it took me aback. I was like, well, I know politically I'm pro-choice. I, I know that. I, I don't know if I could say I'm pro-abortion. Because even with all of the formation that my tradition gave me and all of the communities and experiences, they did not make a space for me to wrestle with my own theology of abortion. They did not make a space for me to wrestle with what is it like to have good sexual pleasure and how is God a part of that? They didn't make a space to talk about the fullness of our reproductive lives and the fullness of the reproductive decisions that we all make and how God is a part of every single one of those. And if there is shame, judgment, and a stigma, that's not coming from God. 
that's coming from some other voice. That's coming from some other power, but that is not of God. And, and so when I learned about the reproductive justice framework as being the four tenets, the human right to have a child, the human right not to have a child, the human right to raise the children we have in safe and sustainable communities, the human right to bodily autonomy. When I heard that, I was like, yes, <laughs> this is where it all makes sense. This is where I don't have to split off parts of what I care about. This is where I don't have to split off parts of my own story, parts of the stories of the people that I bring with me. This is a, a spacious enough framework that can really make change in, in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, in our congregations, in our politics, in our clinics, in our movements, in this country. This is the way forward. Where we hold all of it together and we say we will not compromise any person any community. We will not compromise any particular interest because we know we need all of us to get free together. Um, I love that. I always, I, we have shared done a lot of storytelling together as co-directors. I feel like I um, learn something new every time I hear Angela's story again. Um, and yeah, uh, storytelling is a big part of this work. So thank you for this question. Um, similar to Angela, I feel like I was born into this. <laughs> um, so um, I am the daughter of a mother who died of age-related illness um, in the early 90s, right? When the stigma around HIV and AIDS was at an all-time high. It's still pretty bad, but it was, we, you know, we know that um, at that point in time, it was pretty atrocious. Um, and I learned shame so early in my life um, because I actually wasn't told that my mom died of age-related illness until about seven years after she died. Um, and it was because of my own persistence as a child and my own curiosity and stubbornness that I found out. Um, but knowing that people wanted to keep it a secret, knowing that other people had shame around it and didn't know what to do with it, knowing that the way that people talked about my mother and her sexuality and her body, um, and particularly this faith-based lens, right? Knowing that there were people who claimed to love me and her who believed that in part she had brought her illness on herself, right? That it was sinful, that some, some sort of sinful behavior is what led to my mother contracting HIV um, and that they felt that way about, you know, gay folks, which meant that they felt that way about me um, and all of these things colliding and converging in my life as a, as a very, very young person. And so um, I felt like I was kind of set on a course at an early age. Um, my grandmother 
uh, my maternal grandmother um, who passed away in 2011 and who was a domestic worker for the majority of my life um, and who died of pancreatic cancer, which um, the National Domestic Workers Alliance did research around um, pancreatic cancer in domestic workers is actually linked to harsh chemicals, harmful chemicals that they are exposed to, right, over their lives being domestic workers, which is another reproductive justice issue. Um, my grandmother, when I was younger, used to say that I would go around saying that I wanted to help little girls like me and mommies like mine. And at the time as a child, you know, I thought that meant becoming a doctor or something like that. Um, and so they bought me this little doctor kit and, you know, that was the, that was the trajectory. That's what I was going to do. Um, but then I got to college and I learned about human services um, and I learned about like these other frameworks. And I was like, oh, wait, I think this, I think this is what I'm being called to do or what I want to do. Um, and so after college, got a job. I, well, I did a year of AmeriCorps um, because I was like all service oriented, which was something that was embedded in me within my faith. Um, even with all of these other com complex things, right? So it's like, it was within my faith that I learned about shame and shaming of sexuality and shaming of people's bodies. But it was also within my faith that I learned about teaching and about having a heart of service and, you know, doing work for God's people. And it was like, okay, how do I make these things line up? Um, and so I, I was doing a year of service with AmeriCorps. I was a public health educator, um, and I was teaching sex ed to immigrant communities. And a lot of them were deeply, deeply religious. I wouldn't even say spiritual, deeply religious. And I had to find a way to teach sex ed and condom usage and like public health things to these very, very religious communities. <laughs> and thankfully I was raised in one. And so I figured out how to do it in a respectful way and in a way that they would respond to. Um, and I just remember thinking a lot of times, like, wow, this is so vital. And why didn't we learn this in church? Um, and then my next job kind of gave me, gave me the answer to my question. I was working at an HIV AIDS nonprofit that catered to women and girls of color. It was kind of my dream job at the time. I felt like I had fulfilled my promise of helping little girls like me and mommies like mine. And I was the youth program manager um, working with young women of color between the ages of 12 to 24. Mind you, I was also 24. <laughs> so I'm like in this job, typical nonprofit, right? Just gonna, if you can do it, it's fine. Um, and so I'm in this job and these young women are sharing their stories with me of abuse, of sexual violence, of being queer and questioning, but also carrying tremendous shame because of the messages that they had received in their religious settings, because of the things that they had been told, because they had been told that they weren't a virgin anymore and they were less worthy, because they had been told that, you know, if you have, quote unquote, gay sex, you're going to hell. Um, and I shared a lot of similarities with them as a queer person, as a survivor, um, and it was there that I received my quote unquote call to seminary, as some of us call it, um, or my calling, my faith calling. And it was so crystal clear to me. It's like, oh, yes, this is the work I'm meant to be doing. And 
my particular purpose is to do it from a religious lens, is to do it from a faith-based perspective um, so that young women and girls of color, like the girls that I was working with at the time, never again felt that intense level of shame around their bodies, their choices. So they knew that they had their agency and that God did not hate them, that God wanted them to experience pleasure, that God wanted them to know the fullness of their body, that God wanted them to be free in their bodies um, and to take up space in their bodies, uh, and that they had free will and choice for a reason. Um, I was also grappling with my own queerness at the time and, um, you know, being rejected by my family of origin. And so it's kind of like, all right, well, if God hates me, she's going to have to tell me to my face. Let's go to seminary. Let's go. Let's go find out. <laughs> let's see what all this is about. Um, and yeah, I've never stopped. <laughs> well, that's, thank you both for sharing like such vulnerable, like beautiful stories and also like, what a fulfillment and just wow like I'm sorry I'm just like as y'all were talking both um my brain just kind of like again keeps getting blown um and also I I feel like I can heavily relate to this idea that I don't know like again complexity right of like people and this complexity of wanting to to I guess like be our true authentic selves and also have to fight like what becomes like the I guess like the the internalized voices of like other people I don't know as you were talking I was like I essentially like y'all are doing factory reset on a lot of folks is was the idea I was thinking of and um that's a great way of putting it (laughs) because yeah no because like we didn't come into this world with these like ideas they were like placed on us and and we were we internalized them and so like they think the thing that you're both doing is kind of like uncovering or chiseling at that calcification of like just bad ideas that like kind of keep us yeah um well and and, can i speak to that yes please um That's what we mean when we say everyone has a faith and a reproductive story, because even if you have left all of that behind, there's um, someone I used to work with who got pregnant and knew she was going to have an abortion and knew it was like one, two, three, I am pregnant. I'm going to have an abortion. I'm going to go to hell. Had left the church was not a part of that at all. And still that script is in our heads. And and so if you have not done your work unpacking that and rewriting a new script, you will still be harmed by the messages of shame. That is just the messages out in the world. Cause it's not even like, you don't even have to be a part of a church that's preaching that, but like politically, those messages and people are trafficking in shame because they benefit from us feeling shame about ourselves, separating ourselves off from parts of internally and separating ourselves off from our communities. Because when we come together and we have busted that shame and we can greet each other 
right where we are with openness, compassion, when we can see the full wholeness of every person throughout our story, when we can treat each other with dignity, we're going to be unstoppable. And that's the power that they don't want us to have. Definitely unstoppable. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The unstoppable power of community. And I feel like I heard that come from both of y'all stories, which I'm so grateful that you shared for us. I wish I had had some like more complex or profound thought while y'all were talking, but I was just like, they are so amazing. Like y'all are so just so good. I'm so grateful for y'all. Um, but yeah, and the what I heard in both of y'all's stories is that being out in community and serving other folks was also a really important and pivotal part of you figuring out where you wanted to end up in that community piece. Going back to what you just said, gives us power. Being in community, showing up as yourself, having the space to show up as all of us is what just adds that power. And like Erica was mentioning, chiseling off what doesn't know doesn't serve you any longer. I always think about, oh, I have to change my mind and figuring out like, that's okay. I can change my mind on the daily. If I'm thinking thoughts that aren't taking me to feel more loving towards myself and others, I can change my mind. I'm constantly changing my mind. And I hope that for folks who are maybe feeling shame or any type of feelings that aren't really serving them and leading them to feel so in love with themselves and the life that they've been given and opportunities that are awaiting them, that this episode and getting the chance to hear from you helps them change their minds, even just a little bit to know that they are loved, seen, and there are spaces that are waiting for them to show up exactly as they are. And so I have, I know we're running short on time, but I did want to ask, like, how can folks stay connected with y'all, get to create, like, their congregations to become designated? Like, how can we just learn more about the work that you're doing and stay, like, close to you? Before we answer that, I just got to say, come on, Preacher Shay. (laughs) Come on, Reverend Shay. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, well, one of the ways that you can stay connected with us is on Instagram. Um, we are at sacred underscore repro. Um, so please follow us there. Um, we are also on Facebook. Um, we don't play on Elon Musk. We don't, we don't really play on. Yeah, we don't play on Elon Musk. So. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> Um, and then our um, our website um, is sacreddignity.org, um, and there you can donate to us. Uh, there you can also find out more about the curriculum, um, and if you are a part of a faith community that would like to become sacred designated, um, we highly encourage you to reach out to us um, via email at info at sacreddignity.org and share with us. And we have some upcoming trainings coming this fall, um, which we're very excited about. Um, Our model right now is a train the trainer model. And so if you are a leader in your congregation, whether that be a lay leader, um, clergy, whether you be in charge of like Bible study, 
you know, religious education or something like that, um, then we highly encourage you to participate in our Train the Trainer because uh, you will then learn how to facilitate the curriculum that you could then facilitate within your faith community um, as part of the designation process. Angela, any other ways that folks can stay connected to us? If you like conversations like this, come hang out with us and we'll have more conversations. And you can have conversations with folks just around you, um, even if you're not a member of a congregation, like start digging deep into what are your own understandings? Um, what are the messages that you've been given? What are Which of those messages are still serving you and which of those can you say thank you? And it's time for us to go in a different direction. I want to thank you both for like taking our listeners, but just myself, I feel like I went to church just right now. <laughs> yes. Um, like such a good way. And I just want to thank y'all for that and for sharing, you know, just revolutionary concepts is what it feels like. So, you know, literally doing the Lord's work. Thank you. Literally. Thank you for being out there. So um, yeah, for joining us on, on, on Gaslit, y'all. My God. <laughs> Thank you so so much. Y'all are wonderful. Thank yeah. you. And we Thank love you. the fund and we love we all our Texas organizations holding it down. Yes. So so much. Thank you so much for having us, y'all. Amazing. Thank you. Um is this where we do our sign off? Sure is. Oh my. Well, um I'm gonna I'm gonna start us off, Shay, and if you can wrap us up because I'm doing that thing again. Okay. <laughs> but um, thank you all so much for listening and for going uh, to abortion church with us, which is what I'm calling this now. Um, just kidding. Um, but uh, for real, and we're also going to listen to church girl, all of it. Um, so <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you for coming to this episode of Gaslit. And until next time, stay lit and keep doing gay abortion shit. Uh, y'all are the best thank you so much music